Great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. As we've all said tonight, it's a privilege to have you here. And afterwards, if you hang around, I'd love to meet you. So come down front. I'll be down front. Um, but many of you may not know this, but the way we structure our ministries here at Christ Chapel is by life stages. And so we have life stage one, which is fifth and sixth grade, middle school, high school, and college. And then we have life stage two with his 20-something singles and married, uh, married people in their 20s. And then life stage three is those in their 30s, four, five, and six is the last life stage. So a lot of people want to stay in life stage five because life stage six is the last stop. And then it's the eternal life stage. So a lot of people push back with life stage six. But transitions are one of the most important things with this life stage model. Unfortunately, in a lot of different areas, the transitions are difficult. And one of those difficult areas is college to career or post-college. Um, we've got a great college ministry here at Christ Chapel. Ben Fuquay is the college pastor. Um, they actually, on Sundays, meet at the Aardvark, which is a bar over off Berry Street. And they worship over there. And it's very outreach-driven and Ben Fuquay pours into young college students for sometimes four years. And because they meet off campus and because they don't have a lot of affiliation with the Fort Worth campus of Christ Chapel, a lot of them, after they graduate, go on to different churches or sometimes even drop out of the church altogether. And that's a huge problem because a lot of college students stay right here in Fort Worth after they graduate and they want to find a career, they want to get married, and they want to start a family, and they want to find a church, and we're losing them. And so we've been praying about this. I've been talking with Ben Fuquay about this for a long time, and we've made the decision that come January 1st, we're moving the college ministry out of Life Stage 1 into Life Stage 2. And so they're going to be under the umbrella of Life Stage 2 which I've talked to many of you guys and, and y'all thought that this has been a long time coming. I'm extremely excited about it because I, I think that Ben Fuquay is an amazing guy who has personality traits that I don't have and we have the same ministry philosophy and I think if we merge these two ministries, we're going to do some great things. And so the way it's going to look like in the spring is renovate is going to be the bridge between college and, and post-college. And so this is going to be the place where we believe we're going to keep those college seniors that graduate, keep them at Christ Chapel, keep them using their gifts right here at Christ Chapel. And so we're extremely excited about that. And if you have any questions about that, please come talk to me. If you have any concerns about that, please come talk to me. But we think this is something that's going to be great for our church. Um, until then, we've got a three-week series that I'm calling the Comparison Trap. And so tonight is the first night of that series. Next week, we're going to be off for Thanksgiving. And then we're going to have two weeks in a row. And then we're off for three weeks. So December 17th, December 24th, and December 31st, we're not having Renovate. So we're closing out the semester with this series. And let me tell you, it's been convicting. I've heard several pastors say that when you're preaching, if you share your weaknesses, you'll never run out of things to say. And so as I'm looking at this comparison series, I'm realizing that this is a major weakness in my life. For example, in 2009, my wife and I moved from Natchitoches, Louisiana, where we worked with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, moved here in the summer of 2009, 
so that I could go to seminary. I thought it was going to be a smooth transition. We were going to stay at my parents' place. I was born and raised here. We were going to stay there for just a couple weeks. I'd find a great job. We'd live happily ever after. We stayed there for about four months. And that summer, I was cleaning pools in Arlington. And then I got a job with Renafrog Valet. Not ballet, valet. And so I was dressing up in the valet outfit with the bow tie and going to really um, uh, nice events here in town, big parties. And I would drive nice cars, and then I'd go run and get them at the end of the night and get paid for it. It really wasn't that bad. And so one night, probably about two months into it, there's a big party at Ridgely Country Club. Now, I grew up here. I had friends at Ridgely Country Club. For a while, I belonged to Colonial Country Club, and I had friends at Rivercrest. So I knew the country club scene, and I knew that this was going to be a big party. There was, it was a 20-man crew that I was on. So we show up at Ridgely Country Club, and the first car arrives, and it's a nice black SUV Escalade, and the person who gets out of it is one of my best friends from when I was a little kid. She was in my neighborhood growing up. She was a phenomenal athlete, and so we played sports together. She ended up playing soccer at Stanford. She shows up and gets out of this nice Escalade in a fur coat, and she sees me. We hadn't seen each other in in over a decade, and immediately it's like, Tyler? And I'm like, Martha, what are you doing here? And I give her a hug. How you doing? Everything. And she's like, where's your wife? Where's your wife? Well, my wife wasn't there because I wasn't invited to the party. I'm about to park your car. That's why I'm here. (laughs) So let me get your coat. I'm going to be your gopher for the night. And so in that moment, it was extremely awkward and I felt extremely exposed because ever since we were this high we've both been achieving things and and playing sports and now she's living in New York working for a marketing firm showing up in a fur coat and an Escalade and I'm running to park her car and get it at the end of the night I felt really weird that night and what's worse there was probably 250-300 people there I probably knew over 90% of them And I'm talking best friends from middle school. I'm talking best friends from elementary school. I'm talking best friends in high school. And they're all saying, hey, where's your wife? Glad to see it's been a while. And I'm like, no, my my wife's not here. I'm I'm working for Renafrog. And inside of me, I found myself comparing myself to all of these people that have been in my life. And I started thinking that I'm not in a good place because I was looking at the place that they were in. And I started thinking, I I don't have an Escalade. I'm living at Seminary Housing, Carroll Park, which was built in the early 1900s. It was a piece. It was falling apart. I'm making no money, working two jobs, going to school at the age of 30, and I'm seeing friend after friend show up in BMWs and Mercedes with fur coats and nice clothes and money and social status. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? What is wrong with me? I'm 30. What do I have to show for my life? And it was a rough night because I began to look to my left and right and started comparing myself to the people that were in my life. And and it was a weird feeling. And the funny thing is, if if I went to that same party and everybody who showed up were people that I'd never known, I wouldn't have those feelings. Do you get what I'm saying? I would par- I mean, I did a ton of parties. And why was it that party that got to me? 
because I was comparing and I was seeing that, that my friends were further along than I was. Had more money than I had. Had a house. Had, had nice things. And I'm making my wife suffer through seminary in a terrible little cramped up apartment. And I'm thinking, what is going on with me? And as I've thought about this sermon series and as I've talked to numerous friends and my wife, I realized I'm not the only one. Because I, three or four people who work here at Christ Chapel said, man, I, I need to come to this sermon. Hey, you can use illustrations from my life for this. Because all of us at some point have fallen into the comparison trap. And it is a trap. And no one is exempt and it is a game that you cannot win to mix the metaphors. It's a comparison trap, but it's also a comparison game. And so the way the game's played is, I need to be just a little bit richer than the other person. Or I need to be a little bit smarter or a little bit prettier or a little bit more successful or a little bit more um, um, thinner. You fill in the blank. A little bit more handsome. It goes on and on and on. And it's a game that we play. And we're constantly looking up and saying, I just got to get up there. Just a little more. Just a little more. And that's on one side. And what that breeds in our hearts is discontent. And we get discouraged like I was on that night. And we start to question where we are in life because we're looking at where everybody else is in life. But on the other side, it's, it's just as worse. We start comparing ourselves to those who we think are under us. Well, at least I'm not as ugly as that person. Yeah, I said it. Some of you think it. At least I'm not as poor as that person. At least I'm a little smarter than that person. At least I make a little more money than that person. At least I'm a little further on than that person. What is that breed in your heart? Self-righteousness. Because we keep looking over our left shoulder and our right shoulder and we say, well, we're not where we want to be, so we're discouraged, but we're not where they are, so we're self-righteous. And self-righteous, depressed people are terrible people to be around. <laughs> and then for the, the, the best players at this game, you're not satisfied with being stronger or richer or prettier. You have to be the strongest, the prettiest the richest. In fact, you will never feel contentment until you get all the way to the top. And if you don't remember anything I say tonight, I want you to remember this, that you never win when you play the game of comparison. I'm going to say it again. If you make the choice, which we all have made the choice at different times, if you decide, I want to put on the jersey and step into the game and I want to play the game of comparison, you will never win. You'll never win. And in fact, this game is extremely dangerous. So, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are in severe credit card debt because you've been in the game. And you think you have a certain standard of living that you need to live by because you're looking around. And so you're willing to put yourself in debt so that you can look like those that are around you. Because you're trying to determine where you need to be by looking at where other people are. It's the comparison game. And it leads to, it leads to credit card debt, financial debt. Some of you are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Driven 
obsessed with work and success because in your mind you have this picture that I need to be here in order to get that satisfaction and you're willing to work however many hours you need to work because you're comparing yourself to other people and you're not happy with where you are. Some of you, it's singleness. Uh, this is a season in our ministry where a lot of people are getting engaged, and that's wonderful. That's, that's a great thing. My hope for all of you is that if you have a desire to get married, that you get married and find the right person and have a family, family and raise godly children. That is my desire for you guys. But God has His plans and His timing. And for some of you, that timing might be later on and not right now. But you're looking around you, and you're seeing that it's right now for a lot of people and you're wondering why is it not right now for me? Where am I and why am I here when everybody else is over there? We keep looking around to find out where we need to be and it's a no-win game. Some of you are obsessed with working out or dieting because you look in the mirror and you don't like the way you look. I could go on and on and on, but every day we wake up and we put on our jersey and we compete in the comparison game. The best players are those who diligently look to their left and their right to see where everyone else is so so that they can see where they are in the world. You never win in the game of comparison. So so what what do we do about that? I've seen a lot of heads nodding tonight because I am confident this series will apply to every single one of you. Maybe not right now, but at some point or some point in the past. And we're all asking, okay, great, Tyler. I got a problem. What do I do about it? Well, thankfully, we have this thing called the Word of God, which is the revelation of God that He has given to us, which is absolute truth. It's inerrant. It's inspired. And God knows our sinful nature. And God wants to speak into our lives and renovate our lives. And he wants to get us out of the comparison trap. He wants to take us out of the comparison game. And he wants to transform our lives. And there's a great passage in the book of Ecclesiastes that I want you to turn to. It's in chapter 4. And thankfully God addresses this issue. And I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to leave tonight hanging just a little bit, which I haven't done before. I I want you to wrestle with this this week. So the remedy I'm going to give will be coming the week after next. So unfortunately, maybe that's two weeks you have to wrestle with this. But we're going to get to the remedy. But tonight I want you to see the need. But King Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, was a man who knew about the best. He was the richest. He was the wisest. He had the most beautiful women. He had the most beautiful palaces. He had princes and princesses and kings and queens travel from all over the world to come see him because he was that great. He had everything in the world. You can, you can look in the Bible and it, it goes through all the things he had. He had hundreds of wives. He had gold and silver. and I mean, he had land. He had everything you can dream of. So this is not a man who's not speaking from experience. And he says in chapter 4, verse 4, these things. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, he, he's, there's a little bit of exaggeration. You, 
not every single person who's ever existed in the world has done everything they've done with their skills because of envy for their neighbor. But what he's saying is, and the way the wisdom literature works in the Bible, is generally this is a problem that we all have. We all toil. We all, all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is written 3,000 years ago. And Solomon is looking around to his left and right and seeing all of these people obsessed with what other people are doing and where other people are at and comparing themselves and being envious of other people. And so they're toiling and they're working and they're using everything they have because of what other people have. And I've spent most of my life in athletics. And if there's one thing I've learned in athletics, it's that competitiveness is in all of us. Some of us more than others. And I personally struggled with competitiveness growing up. And I was always wanting to be the best. But unfortunately, a lot of the motives for that were looking at being better than the other people. Even if that was my older brother. It was rooted in comparison. And so Saul, uh, Solomon says that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And unfortunately, ministry is not exempt. So just because I'm out of sports doesn't mean I'm not exempt from comparison. And we, most of you know that. I mean, you look around at the churches and the ministries, and if you don't watch out, you know, I'm comparing myself to some of the best preachers in the country who are on your iPods and, and iPhones and and, you know, it can get out of hand. In fact, there was one preacher in England in the, in the late 19th century. His name was F.B. Meyer. He told this following experience to a few personal friends. He said it was easy to pray for the success of G. Campbell Morgan when he was in America. G. Campbell Morgan was one of the best preachers in the history of the church. But when he came back to England and took a church near to mine, it was something different. The old Adam in me, meaning the sinful nature, was inclined to jealousy, but I got my heel upon his head, and whether I felt right toward my friend, I determined to act right. Then he says this, My church gave a reception for him, and I acknowledged that if it was not necessary for me to preach Sunday evenings, I would dearly love to go and hear him myself. Well, that made me feel right toward him. That made me feel good inside. But just see how the dear Lord helped me out of my difficulty. There was Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the other greatest preachers in the history of church, of the church, preaching wonderfully on the other side of me. So this guy's church is in between two of the greatest preachers ever. And he said, he and Mr. Morgan were so popular and drew such crowds that our church caught the overflow and we had all we could accommodate. So God bless him, it worked out for him. But I can tell you, if you got into F.B. Meyer's mind... He was freaking out because Charles Spurgeon on one side and G. Campbell Morgan on the other is the death blow to most ministries. But by God's grace, some of them, the, the place was packed, so they came over to F.B. Meyer's church and he got some, you know, he got some of the, the scraps. <laughs> but ministry is like that. Ministry, of all people, ministers struggle with comparison. And so he continues, he says in verse 4, this also is vanity and striving after wind. Picture that. I mean, picture someone who's striving after wind. Essentially what he's saying is that it's a no-win scenario. When, when you get into this, this comparison game and you start toiling and striving and chasing after the wind, you will never experience victory. In fact, I can promise you, you will never experience contentment. 
if you play the comparison game because it's always going to be just outside of your reach. I'm telling you. I've got a few years on some of you guys. It's always just out of your reach. My family, we have two beautiful girls, but my, my wife looks around. She told me I could share this, and she sees some other families having their children, and, and y'all understand one day, but, but when, you, when you have a child and you get pregnant, there's something that you long for and having that happen again, and she's starting to compare, and all of a sudden two children's not enough. So we're talking about three, and I'm just like, hey, let's hang tight, okay, still in school. <laughs> Just started a new ministry. Let's, let's chill out for a little bit. But, but it's this comparison trap that we're in. And actually, it's all vanity. And it's all striving after the wind. You never have a sense of satisfaction. You never have a sense of accomplishment. You never have a sense of rest. Because you're constantly toiling. And so what happens is, is many people see that and they go, well, I don't want that. And so they swing the pendulum the other direction and say, well, I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to coast in life. I'm going to be lazy. I'm not going to toil. And thankfully, Solomon thought of those people because you could argue tonight, well, then I'll just, I'll just kind of coast and be lazy. So Solomon says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's, that's not a pleasant picture. He's saying the fool is so unproductive and lazy that they don't have any money to even buy food so they just cannibalize themselves okay that's disturbing and i think king solomon says this because he doesn't want us to respond to the verse four by saying well we just we're just going to quit and so there's got to be another way it's not about being lazy and sitting on the couch and doing nothing so there is a place for Ambition. There is a place for wanting to do well in what you do. So what is that third way? Solomon gives it to us in verse 6. And I love this. He says, Better is a handful of quietness. And in some translations, it's tranquility. Which I love that word. Say that word. Tranquility. It's so peaceful just saying that word. Better is a handful of tranquility than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So what, what is he saying there? Better is a handful, meaning the other hand's open, of tranquility, with tranquility, than to have two closed fists and be constantly striving after the wind. And I, I picture like the kids at a pinata party where you hit the pinata and the candy goes all out. And what do those kids do? What would we do if we had a pinata right here? I don't care how old you are. <laughs> Depending on what's in the pinata, it's a fight. We're going in with both hands and we're leaving double-fisted full of stuff. And unfortunately, we got a lot of people in our culture and a lot of people in this room that are spending their lives striving and chasing after the wind because they want to fill both hands with stuff. And it's never enough, King Solomon is saying. And so better to have one hand full, meaning... You know, the things that you need for life, food, shelter, clothing, and, and just being able to provide for yourself and for those that you love. And having that other hand open to have tranquility and peace and not have that inner angst all the time than to have two fists closed. And this sermon prep has convicted me because what I know as a pastor is that in Christ we lack nothing. Everything we need for life and godliness is in Christ and in His Word. We don't need anything else. But what I find in my life way too often is that I'm constantly striving because I think there's something I'm lacking. 
I'm discontent. And I, I can think back to my senior year in college. I was playing baseball at Northwestern State. And of all my years of existence, my senior year in college was when, when I was in the best shape of my life. Because we had a, uh, a drill sergeant for a strength coach. And we, we trained for hours and hours. And it was the, the best years of my life, physique-wise and health-wise and endurance and everything. And you know how satisfied I was in that? Very little. And I look back and I want to slap myself and go, enjoy it while you have it, you idiot. But I look back and the reason that I didn't enjoy being in tip-top shape is because I had a whole baseball team of people that were training with the same strength coach and in God's sovereignty gave some people more giftedness than others and more strength than others. And so instead of enjoying the fact that I had, was, was in great shape, I was looking at those around me and being discontent. I wasn't satisfied with the one hand. I had to have the two hands of stuff. And I think of that and I'm just like, man, what, when, when is it ever going to be enough? And so I, I, I want to ask you right now as, as we finish up, do you believe this? Do you believe the words that are coming out of my mouth? That it really is... One fist, other fist open, and you can have a life of peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction. Do you really believe that? Or is there something in you that keeps pressing you to say, no, I need more. There's still more out there, and until I get there, I'm going to keep striving, and I'm going to keep going full speed. That's a question I want you to think about this week. And so he finishes up in verses 7 and 8 by using another illustration. But he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. Verse 8, one person who has no other, either son or brother. In other words, he had, this person had no one to give his inheritance to. Because in those days, the inheritance is given to the, the son or the brother. And so he had no one in his life. Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So here's the picture that Solomon's given. Solomon sees a type of person who is obsessed with work for no real reason. He's got no legacy to leave. Nobody is in his life. He's striving to work for no real reason and he's getting no satisfaction out of it and there's always more to do, another mountain to climb, but never any contentment. And so the passage continues and says, he never, he never stops and asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What a, what a great question to ask yourself. Why am I doing this? Stop and ask, why am I obsessing over finding the right person to marry? Why am I just constantly toiling when I know people are married and there are just as many struggles after marriage as before? Why am I doing this? Why am I working 70 plus hours a week? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself that? What's really important in life, I think, is what King Solomon is getting at. And he ends by saying, this also is vanity, and really it's an unhappy business. You never win in the game of comparison. And so a few application questions. What or who is your mirror? What or who is 
your mirror? Where are you looking to find your joy, your satisfaction, your contentment? Is it your parents? Or maybe your dad has, has projected this image of what you should be. And you keep comparing yourself to that. And you realize I'm never measuring up. I'm never measuring up. Is that the mirror that you're looking at? Is the mirror your, your, your boss? Or is it your best friend who seems to be getting along or further, than, further than you? Is it status? Is it recognition? Is it money? Is it material possessions? We all have to decide where we're going to look to find contentment. That's ultimately the choice we have to make. And next week, I'm, I'm going to tell you where I think we can find true and lasting contentment. And so as we prepare for next week, I'm going to leave you hanging with these questions. And they're going to be up on the screen. Here's the first one. Are you allowing what others have to keep you? I'm sorry. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? And you fill in the blank of what that is. You know, for me right now, I, I get jealous when I see my friends my age buying houses because we're still living in seminary housing. And that's that thing that's like, oh, I'd love to have a house right now. I'm comparing. I need to stop that. That's the first one. Second one. Do you live in a constant state of discontent? So I want you to think about that this week. Are, are, are you peaceful? Do you, could someone describe you as living a life of tranquility? Or is your life just a constant stormy whirlwind because you're just churning and going and moving? You're in the rat race and it's just on and on and on. And people are like, man, what, what's your deal? You need to, to relax. Third one, do you secretly hope that other relationships fail because of your difficulty in relationships? <laughs> Ow, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Is that the truth? This series is going to hit close to home, and I'm telling you, I was nearly in tears today thinking about this. So I'm, I'm not talking to you guys like I'm in a place of Hey, you need to be like me. I'm in this with you guys. But the fact of the matter is, when we see other people prosper, sometimes, not all of you, but sometimes there's something in you that when you find out that it didn't work out, you get a little sense of, whew. Let's just be real. The next one, and this is the final one. No, I'm sorry, there's one more. Does the success of your friends bring joy or discouragement? Are you a friend that when your friends are succeeding and your friends have great events that happen in your life, are you high-fiving and loving on them or are you getting a little resentful of that? Just a question to ask. I'm not accusing you of doing that. It's something to ask. And then finally, would those closest to you describe you as a chaser of the wind? I'm sure they wouldn't use those terms. <laughs> are you a chaser of the wind? Sounds like an Indian name. Um, chaser of the wind. Would those closest to you describe you as someone who's chasing the wind, constantly toiling and striving for something that's just outside of your reach? That's a question you need to ask. And so, ultimately, this is a deeply spiritual issue. This is not something to, um, although we laugh at this because we've all felt this, and that's good, we're not alone. What Renovate is all about is that we're all broken. 
All of our houses are broken and need repair, so we're all in this together. But this is a deeply spiritual issue. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to have a difficult time experiencing the joy of the Lord if you're constantly looking to your left and your right. And so when we meet again, to the best of my ability, I want to tell you where you can find contentment. And for those of you who know Christ, you know what I'm going to tell you. But for those of you who don't, I'm giving you something that can transform your life. We never arrive. We're constantly in the process of being made like Christ. But I can help you start the journey to overcoming this this ruthless game called comparison. So let's pray together. Father God, I, I, I know that for many in here, what I've said hurts maybe even as offensive. But I believe you put it on my heart. And I believe it's what your word clearly says, is that if you are playing this game, man, you are, it is vanity. It is worthless. It is hopeless. Because our only hope to find Peace and tranquility and contentment and joy and satisfaction is in your son, Jesus Christ, alone. And instead of looking around, Lord Jesus, help us to look up at you. Help us to take the gifts that you've given us and not worry about the gifts that you've given others and to be the best us that we can be. And Lord, I pray that as we do that and as we fight this fight of contentment, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with this tranquility that's like an ocean where there can be a hurricane on the surface, but you go 200 feet deep and it is silent and it is peaceful and it is tranquil. And I pray that for every heart in this room, that no matter what's going on on the outside, that all of our hearts will be at peace in Jesus Christ. And I pray this in His name. Amen.